how does this meditation make you a better athlete? Is it going to make you mellow and soft? Not at all. It's just going to make you be able to meet the moment Mm -hmm. with everything you've got. Welcome to Sauce Talk. This is Billy Hansen. And first, just want to say thank you for all the responses I got after that first episode came out. It was really, really great hearing from so many of you, and I am motivated to push this thing forward and see where it goes. So thank you for that very much. The first interview on the podcast is going to be with Libby Edson. Libby is the founder of Yo Mind, which is an organization that has brought meditation, mindfulness, and yoga to thousands of kids across America through both her workshops and the videos that she's posted online and her work that she's done with athletes. And she focuses on work with athletes. She was an athlete herself, and she has a really powerful and helpful perspective on the relationship between meditation, yoga, and sports. Libby's organization actually started when she worked with me and a few of my friends the summer before my senior season. And I am very grateful for the time that I spent with her that summer, as I think that the work I did with her was crucial in my recovery during my senior season. Libby is an excellent teacher, and she's very knowledgeable on these topics. And um, since her work with me, she has, her organization has grown quite a bit. She's working with various sports teams in Ashland for both Southern Oregon University and Ashland High School. And she's working to spread mindfulness into the curriculum in various school districts. And she's done some interesting work teaching mindfulness to doctors. And her work with them has produced some interesting results in a reduction of medical errors from the doctors that she's worked with. So she's up to a lot of cool things, and it was great chatting with her on the podcast. In this episode, we discuss mental and emotional training in sports. We talk about the relationship between contemplative practices and performance. We discuss anxiety in athletics and how an anxious athlete should view his or her anxiety. We discuss what it means to refine self-talk in sports. We talk about the importance of an athlete's intention towards his or her sport or their value system. And then we talk about the differences between mindfulness and quietness or calmness and how those things are often conflated, but that they are not the same thing. So if you'd like to support the podcast, you can leave a review wherever you're listening to it, either on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Google Play. Um, You can also subscribe directly to my website, which is billyhanson.net, and that way you'll receive an email whenever new content comes out. And you can share the podcast with anyone who you think might like it or find it valuable. And please reach out to me with any comments or feedback or suggestions. It was really great hearing from so many of you. And with that, here is Libby Edson. Hi, Libby. Hey, Billy. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So... Lots to talk about. Um, I think it makes sense to start with how you and I got connected because it was kind of serendipitous. Um, It was the summer before my senior season, which was my 
the beginning of my recovery from a pretty dark college basketball career into something that turned out to be um, a great uh, ending for my athletic career. And I will have properly introduced you in the intro to this podcast, but you have such an interesting bio and it is interesting that you're wading into all of the amazing things you're doing now started with your help um, to me and a few of my friends. So I'm very grateful for that. But let's talk about bumping into each other on the plane in, it was Seattle, right? Yeah, it was Seattle. Yeah, I was returning from uh, the East Coast, from South Carolina. I just been to uh, a dear friend's wedding. And was, so I was feeling pretty, in a pretty great mood. Mm-hmm. And, you know, flying back to Ashland, it's always kind of common to find someone we know mm-hmm. flying back to the same destination. But I was quite grateful to find you at the uh, terminal mm-hmm. waiting to fly back to Ashland. And I th- do remember, I think you said, I was just thinking about yoga. Yeah. And yes. I thought, oh, that's funny. I was too. Because yes. I used to think about it often. Because we had known each other a little bit through the years. There was You were coaching middle school basketball, right. and I came and talked to your team a little bit. And yeah. then I'd gotten connected to um, Laura. Laura. So Laura. yeah, Laura and I got connected and did some yoga. And then I bumped into you on the plane, and we started um, talking about how you might be leading some yoga. And then that summer we started practicing together and it sort of organically morphed from yoga into expanding the meditation practice that I'd already been doing. And then just just some key kind of mental frame shifts that I took with me into my senior year that were really interesting. What was so great and serendipitous serendipitous about it is the wedding I was returning from was uh, my friend's son. Who mm-hmm. I used to play basketball with him, and he had the same teenage years. And, you know, it's through watching all of my kids grow up, and then also through coaching. I was, at the time I met, uh, ran into you in the airport, um, I was becoming fascinated with the connection between the mind and performance, mm-hmm. and had an idea of some things I wanted to do. So when you suggested, you said, hey, I'd like to do some yoga. I said, hey, well, I have some other things too (laughs) that I'd really love to run by someone to get feedback to see how it lands with that particular age group. Yes, yes. I think it was noticing as my children grew up and my son performed in sports that there just was this lack of uh, emotional intelligence being integrated into sports yes you know that whole spectrum you know i think there's a saying you know a great coach can make a great person Mm -hmm. but you know that coach because of the hierarchy can also destroy a person's confidence and that the ages of 15 through 25 are just so tender yeah and that's where most of my interest lies is in the developing brain and uh being able to work with you that summer allowed me to translate some of the, the parenting wisdom uh, along with, you know, things I knew as a player um, and incorporate it uh, into, you know, how does this connect to the mind? And that was kind of the summer I spent with you was kind of the birth of creating your mind. Yes. And I, I couldn't agree more. Um, there's a common understanding in athletics that sports can be its own education and it can help develop young people into, you know, more complete individuals and, you know, in turn help the community and people's families. But what I think is not acknowledged is how many young athletes end up falling through the cracks because they 
love sports and they would want nothing more than to be happy and confident and have fun playing their sports, but they end up flaming out and leaving their sports embittered, whether it's a negative experience with a coach or they don't have the mental or emotional skills to handle pressure and difficult training. It, it is, um, we, we, as athletes, the athlete community pays lip service to preparing the mind for competition. But I think we're starting to see that more and more athletes are taking that part of their uh, preparation more seriously, rather than just trying to think their way into a positive mind state, actually training the mind in various ways, just like you would your body or your skill set. Um, through things like meditation and yoga um, and just you know thinking a little bit more clearly about the underlying dynamics of sports and how your mind relates to them um, so exploring this these things has been very interesting and helped me a lot too what is um what are some of the things you're up to now because since you and I were working and you, we were working with my friend Mesa Montgomery and Jake Scarmanach that summer and we were yes. sort of lucky guinea pigs in your program but it's been a pretty amazing to see how Yo Mind has expanded since then. So, what's what are some of the things you're up to? Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, it's been a great journey and continues to grow all the time. Um, the currently at the high school where I'm, you know, serving the students there, we haven't. I've worked with sports teams, but we've worked with every student at the high school for mm-hmm. the last like eight years, mm-hmm. and there's been some really great changes. I mean, the class sizes sometimes are really large. This uh, semester, um, I had the good fortune of having one period that just had 15 students mm-hmm. that were upperclassmen. And since everyone gets it as freshmen, it turned out to be the advanced conditioning class. Mm-hmm. And um, from day one, they were just super bought in. And I said, hey, there's only 15, 15 of us. So mm-hmm. we went up into the yoga studio. And I've been going in actually extra days for them. Mm. because they're so into it and we're doing restorative and a lot more pranayama and meditation most mm. of them uh most of them play sports a few of them are just weightlifting mm-hmm. but it's just really great it kind of reminds me of our summer together but i have these 15 young men that mm. you know i went to the football coach a little story here and i said you know these guys are great they are so into this you know yoga and meditation that i'd like to work with them more often mm. he said really he said, these guys, because his experience of these same kids were that they were typical teenagers and they were quite a handful when they were in the weight room. Yeah. And I think we've had um, six sessions now. So last session I said, you know, you've got to come, you know, please to the football coaches, please just come and see what they're doing. You just will not believe to see these kids walk in the room and not speak for an hour and 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. And he was shocked. Mm-hmm. And they settle in so quickly to the practice that he, he found him. He, go, he goes, I noticed I was the only one fidgeting. And I said, exactly. <laughs> and basically it goes, the, the, the kids are just, they're, I'm kind of getting off topic here, but they're just, um, most kids are either accepting of it because we've done it at the high school a long time, or there's been enough media support and a, much, uh, a lot of well-known athletes are using it so their kids are more accepting of it. But the, you know, the um, classes are going strong. I've got some that are uh, up to 90 people. I find a lot of the kids end up during final rest falling asleep. Yeah. I have many students that tell me it's their favorite day of the week. It's the only day that they like. Yeah. It's, um, uh, I think 
it just kind of speaks to the times that we're all kind of craving it. So in addition to working at the high school, um, I've had the good fortune of working with some of the teams at SOU, mm-hmm. Southern Oregon University, and working in particular with the women's softball team mm-hmm. the last two seasons. Um, first season I worked with them, I offered the same workshop mm-hmm. um, I kind of gave to you and Jake and Mason over the summer. Although it kind of expanded it a little bit, offered them that workshop. They took third in the nation. And then the next year, I did a kind of a mini workshop with them, mm-hmm. since many of them were the same players, just kind of updated it. Um, the first one was more individual mindset, mm-hmm. and the second was more of a team mindset, like as a team, you know, everything is interconnected so that the choices that you're making individually are going to be affecting this whole team bubble yeah and the ability for that team to rise is completely dependent on every single person whether you're in a game or not mm-hmm. whether you're the manager just your energy through uh not really energy but through mirror neurons the way that you're carrying yourself the decisions you're making they influence the way other people do it great story they ended up finishing uh as national champions yeah. the following year volleyball back-to-back conference champions for the first time in history Best season ever last year, finishing eighth. Mm-hmm. Um, only and then this year was third time in school history that they've gotten out of pool play, and they mm-hmm. ended up ninth mm-hmm. in the nation, which is you know out of two hundred teams or two or four hundred teams, I don't know how many in the NAIA, but it's yeah. um, that's been some of the most rewarding work I've done, uh, probably because of being an athlete myself. Yeah, and especially I think with the volleyball team, I spent most of my time playing volleyball and basketball, and so. Uh, through coaching basketball and through, you know, playing volleyball, I just, it's been a wonderful intersection of bringing yoga and meditation into that and how they, it's just such a great complementary thing. Yes. And and speaking to what you said before too, I think the change has been that we're looking more holistically at the athletic experience, Mm -hmm. whereas before it was how many games are you going to win? Yeah. And because of, you know, there's been some know some dysfunctional fallout from the system of sports that I think uh, the emergence of uh, mainstream mindfulness and meditation has kind of helped steer yeah you know administrators to look at their programs holistically yeah yeah the the even since you and I I feel like when I started working with you it was still a pretty eccentric kind of odd thing to be into and even in just the what has it been three or four years four years it seems like it's becoming more mainstream which is great i've even read an article that they're running tests in um nato is encouraging the military to try to adopt it which is you know that's a culture that you wouldn't think would be having people sit still and meditate but it is pretty cool because really what we're talking about is the science of performance yeah Right. And, you know, whether you're performing in the military or being asked to do a task from any employer yeah. or any challenge, um, we now have the science of how the mind works and how to optimize the ability to meet a challenge. And yeah. the more information and training that we have, you know, and that's the goal of sports, of course, is to up yeah. the game. And there's so many things in our culture that are increasingly running the other direction, which is being on our phones and having so much entertainment at our fingertips and exactly the, 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 the apps and the, you know, decision paralysis and the FOMO that we all deal with. I think it makes the contemplative practice 
all the more valuable to, to commit to something that's that is a discipline that is difficult but also so rewarding and just on a slower pace than you know because it takes yeah. in order to be a good athlete or to be a great team it takes a lot of sacrifice right. and it takes a lot of mundane repetitive tasks right. and that can be hard for a lot of young people to yeah. swallow and so that the the difference between you know what young people are taught they should be doing by you know marketing or their instagram feeds versus what it takes to be a successful and happy athlete there's kind of a um the, the, they don't blend very well and i, th- I think that the meditative contemplative practice can be a really good way to bridge that gap between the two competing interests and to, right. to yeah. uh, find a more clear set of priorities. Because, you know, what I'm hearing you paraphrase is something I say to my kids is that, you know, we're living in a distracted society yeah. where attention is your greatest commodity. Yeah. It's the most valuable asset, is what I say over and over. Yeah. It, where you put your attention, that's going to be your experience. Yes. And in athletics requires focus, you know, I think back to the championship at SOU this year. The softball coach walked by me as the girls' volleyball team was just crushing the other team. And he says, they're playing out of their minds. (laughs) And I said, exactly. That's the whole point is because we're wanting athletes to play out of their minds, free from overthinking. Yeah. Yet with the same type, you know, with an optimal physical and mental performance, you know, that's where the mindfulness and the training comes in, that ability to stay in the zone or to keep that level of play sustainable, yeah, you know, is basically playing out of your mind. Yes. So I wanted to talk about um, some of the things that I took with me from working with you into my senior season that I thought were really helpful. Um, the one that jumps out to me the most is the concept of how you do anything is how you do everything. You want to speak to that a bit? Yes, that's a that's a quote from T. Harv Eckert that really embodied what I was trying to teach with your mind. That mindset was everything. Mm-hmm. You know, we have especially in athletics. You know, mm-hmm. we cultivate and we practice free throws and we practice, you know, running sprints and we're working on agility, all those types of physical things, and that we also have the ability to create emotional and mental agility mm-hmm. through practice as well. And that those physical tasks that we do are opportunities for practice. And mm-hmm. so how we're practicing a sport is going to be how we play it. Yeah. How uh, one of the things I teach just in terms of yoga, the yoga mat is like a mirror mm-hmm. and shows us how we respond to things. It's kind of a, I look at um, yoga as a controlled stress practice, mm-hmm. the physical part of it. And we have an opportunity while practicing those physical movements to notice how we respond to challenge and things like that. Most cases, at least I've found with me search, <laughs> and I think there's research out there that supports it as well, that if I'm resisting something on the mat, there's places off the mat that I might be resisting. Mm-hmm. Um, when I'm teaching these you know, young kids, this is what makes it so fun to be their first yoga teacher too. It's like, I'll say, okay, I'm gonna show you, you can stay here, you can stay at this pose, you can take it here and I'll give them a bunch of options. And then after, at the end of it, I'll say, okay, who thinks this one here that looks more advanced is more advanced? And they're all like, oh, yeah, that's it. <laughs> and it's like, well, is that, you know, that might not be the best one for your body. So I'm teaching them, you know, that to pay attention to how they're doing things and proceeding. 
So how you do anything is how you do everything is like a work ethic too. Yeah. You know, it, in habit building, it, habits are, you know, a summation of all the choices we've made up to that point. Mm-hmm. You know, over time, well, our mind wants to habituate and put things into habit. But it's like that can be a favorable or unfavorable thing, whether we're paying attention. Yeah. And so I like to use that quote just, you know, to talk about mindset. It's kind of a good introduction. I know there's several teams that um, I've worked with because I've also worked with the high school teams and they'll have someone yell it out in um, <laughs> during practice, you know, when they see someone, you know, not paying attention and, you know, kind of slacking in a drill. Yeah. They'll yell, yell out how you do anything and everyone says yes, how you do everything. <laughs> so it's like really been a great tool to um, integrate the practices that we do on the mat, the yoga and meditation yeah. into the athletic practice and have uh, teams have some languaging yeah. to connect. And it's kind of a fun thing too. I yeah. love the quote. How did it, um, what shift did it make in your mind? Yeah. Um, so when I first heard that concept and you were encouraging us to view our yoga practice that way during the summer, um, it did really kind of upgrade my overall mindfulness practice as I was trying to bring it to the court. So I think one of the problems I initially had was so I started meditating and then I would try to bring that mindset with me to the court, but it wasn't, I wasn't, um, there was that gap. It was like, I, I was, I had this hierarchy of where I needed to be ready. Um, and that in itself kind of added pressure. So it's like, okay, when I'm doing yoga, or when I'm meditating, I'm being mindful. And then when I step, show up to practice and I'm nervous, um, or I'm dealing with mental stress, I need to bring mindfulness, but it was almost like I was waiting until the storm came to to bring the proper mindset. When you encouraged me to start looking at everything as a practice, not in that you need to force yourself to be, you know, follow your breath all day long, but that, you know, whatever you're doing, you show up the DMV, that's an opportunity to bring full attention and awareness. If you're having a conversation with your mom at breakfast, um, you can put your phone down and the, the, the idea that everything fell into the category of potential practice um, really helped me um, take away some of the, that hierarchy of, or like, you know, uh, transcend some of that hierarchy where I treated some things and some people, some situations as really important, really stressful, and it would kind of spin me out. And I started trying to treat everything like an opportunity to bring the right mind state um, and stopped um, playing these mental games to myself of, okay, it's practice time, time to get amped up, time to get mindful. It was more like, okay, this is another opportunity to drop back and be present and bring the right effort and energy. And so that was really, really useful for me. Um, why don't we talk a little bit about anxiety? Because that was something that I went through really bad my, my sophomore year of college. Um, and I had a Luckily, I had an excellent therapist who introduced me to meditation originally and got me out of practice. Um, and I was actually, my sophomore year, diagnosed with paralyzing anxiety. But what I'm, luck- I'm grateful that the therapist didn't help, just didn't allow me to succumb to it or use it as an excuse. It was this kind of, okay, you've got this problem, but we're going to do these practices and you're going to get out of it and you're going to, you know, you know you're going to improve. And I was really appreciative of that. 
so I've been wrestling with this idea of anxiety is a real thing and it's something that some of us go through more than others. Um, and I think that we've done a great job in our, in the athletic culture recently of breaking the taboo around talking about it and getting away from the, just rub some dirt on it. Don't be a pussy attitude that I think was pervasive in athletics for so long. But however, I, I, I think we are at risk of swinging the pendulum all the way to the other side. Um, and this is something that I think I fell into a little bit of, um, I think you call it reifying. I'll let you speak to this, but making anxiety or depression or negative mental states part of your identity mm-hmm. and kind of surrendering to them, like everything's okay, how it is. Um, and so I've been trying to put these thoughts together for some time, but where do you see the balance between being okay, understanding that if you have anxiety, it's okay, um, but also um, trying to work through it and not making it part of your identity? Uh, so I know I just threw a lot at you, but yeah. so you can pick up on any of sure. those threads. You know, it's, well, you know, just getting back, first of all, to how you do anything is how you do everything. That quote really is kind of the basis of like what's your narrative that you have about yourself mm-hmm. you know that you know it's kind of introducing the concept that whatever narrative we come up with and if we believe our own thoughts and you know feelings and if we start identifying and creating a narrative around our personality like instead of saying i am i'm experiencing anxiety or mm-hmm. i'm feeling anxiety you know mindfulness says okay well where are you feeling it in your body right um you know oh i'm feeling this sensation in my chest right and it uh between that and the psychological aspect you have an uh an opportunity to disconnect and so reifying is when you you say i've experienced anxiety so i am anxious or i'm an anxious person or yeah Yeah. exactly and so i you know i have anxiety or whatever and i'm you know this is a semantic thing but yet the brain is listening to our, our words yeah. and it's the words that we're thinking in it as well so if i walk around and tell everyone that i have anxiety yeah chances are i'm going to have more anxious moments yeah. because i'll start believing that about myself because when the mind believes this is about beliefs if you have a belief about yourself the possibility for another way mm-hmm. is diminished mm-hmm. and so with sports you know you talk about the the two ends and i've dealt a lot with this about you know especially when meditation practices and pranayama or breath control is so helpful for people that do experience anxiety. Um, The contemplation has been as well, what's the right amount prior to a game or prior to a, um, a, um, an event. And that is a really, a real individual thing. And the more someone practices, the more skillfully they can meet the moment. So I always, so I kind of, have worked with people in what's called de-reifying, and that's uh, I learned from Paul Condon over at um, Southern Oregon University. He's mm-hmm. a psych- psychologist. He's got a PhD in psychology, and is really um, talking a lot about compassion and self-compassion. Uh, in order to have compassion for other people, you've got to recognize the compassion uh, that has been extended to you, and have a process of kind of giving yourself. I could say, give yourself a break. Yeah. Or the ability to give yourself a break. And in terms of, you know, anxiety, there's 
sensations in the body that, um, again, both research and me search um, support this, that I may have that sensation in my chest and it might be excitement. It could be labeled and I could experience that same physical sensation as excitement and joy. And at another time, I would be framing it and identifying it with something um, uncomfortable or, you know, as anxiety, yeah. right? And it could, they could be the, you know, <laughs> same exact physical sensation, but we, our mind has created a synapse yeah. that has connected it with a thought and that the narrative around ourselves. And that's what we're trying to do with, you know, med- uh, contempl- contemplative practices is to what Paul uh, mentions in his paper uh, is to de-reify, which yeah. is to um, allow the thoughts and allow the feelings, the sensations, there's room for it all and don't become that. Yeah. You know, the more, uh, the per- we do have personal agency over where we direct our attention. We have personal agency over the words we use to describe our experiences. Yeah. And that kind of, that's like a cognitive education yeah. that also needs to be physically embodied. And that's what I love about the combination of bringing some of these concepts into a yoga class like I'm doing with Yo Mind. Yeah. Um, I'm not the only one doing this type of thing, but you know, that age group, especially that, you know, actually all the way down younger kids all the way through 25. And I probably say the same thing for people 65. Mm -hmm. We need to be embodied. We need to embody a concept and physically feel that visceral change Mm -hmm. that happens when we de-reify or begin to disassociate or uh, understand that we are not our thoughts and feelings. Yeah. And that is, to me, what meditation is for is to uh for me it's not stopping thinking it's understanding that thinking is going to happen yeah and which way is my brain going right now and can i take a pause and redirect it towards something that might be more favorable yeah you used to call it the watcher right yeah um which is this kind of meta awareness where you're rather than being tossed around by every thought and emotion and impulse you're just the, the ability, that's kind of the first breakthrough, I think, for a lot of people when they start meditating is they start to see their thoughts and their feelings and their emotions as not themselves necessarily. Mm-hmm. Whereas before I learned to meditate, I was identified directly with feelings of anxiety. And the, when the anxiety ar- arose, I would feel um, ashamed of it and I would mm-hmm. want to push it away and try to be tough and... You know, I found myself doing hilarious things in retrospect, like watching the um, overly exuberant YouTube coaches, like that (laughs) stupid video, like, you got to want to succeed more than you want to breathe, like (laughs) waking up at like fucking four in the morning to go get jump shots up because I thought that would give me constant confidence. And I look back at that period of my life as kind of like a a fish flopping on land yeah. trying to like find some mental peace yeah. and, and you know and, to to give yourself a break too yeah. a lot of the science as you were transitioning into college wasn't available yeah you know like you know it used to be practice makes perfect you know practice yeah. makes perfect let's run you know harder train harder train right. harder and now the science that's recently come out said that practice plus reflection or meditation or whatever you want to call it right after yeah your practice session thinking about and visualizing the things that went well 
and not yeah. focusing on what sure. uh, was unfavorable. That's actually creating something. I don't know what the statistics are, but it's something like the next time that athlete practices, it's like their performance is measurably mm-hmm. increased. Mm-hmm. And so it's, you know, to give yourself a break, it is sure. that yeah. this kind of stuff, you were in college, right? When this wave, when you, I think you and LeBron started meditating about the same time. When yeah. LeBron, when they started yeah. showing. Which is no accident. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I've used LeBron so many times. Do you know LeBron James? Especially with the sixth graders. It's like, you know, do you guys know who he is? And everybody's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, well, he does this stuff, so let's try it. Right. You know, and right. they would zoom in on him during yeah. games and he would just be. Yeah, he talked about his disaster finals performance against the Mavericks the first year he was on the Heat how he just kind of stopped taking shots. It was very bizarre to watch as a fan, mm-hmm. especially someone on that scale with that amount of pressure and scrutiny. And he's now mentioning that that series showed him. So he got off social media during the playoffs and he developed a meditation practice. And he said that even those two things improved his mind drastically. And now we've seen him be in the playoffs superhero, you know, no matter oh, who absolutely. they're playing, he's, he's incredible. Um, go back to anxiety just a little bit. Cause I think this is a, you're a great person to talk to about this. So what my therapist in college first recommended to me was that I treat my anxiety as something that is, that's going to be there with me on the court. It was, she, because mine had gotten so out of hand, um, it was, she tried to help me look at it as a thing that I should try to become comfortable playing with and performing with. And that initial shift of not trying to push it away um, really was freeing. And I resisted it at first, but then she'd have me sit in her office and I'd start meditating with her. Uh, I don't even know if she called it meditating yet uh, initially in those sessions, but then she'd have me bring to mind something that made me anxious. And for me, it was the, the easiest one was shooting free throws with my head coach watching because I had been recruited as a shooter, had lost my confidence shooting, and now I was shooting something like 50% from the free throw line. And so every time I stepped to the line, I felt ashamed and worried I was going to airball, and it was this big kind of mental spin out. So I'd sit in her office and visualize myself shooting free throws, and the feelings of anxiety would arise. And then she'd have me practice paying attention to the sensations. And noticing the sensations clearly did, even when I was just early on and had a very novice skill set of mindfulness, it was striking to see how much power they lost over me when I was just able to step back a tiny bit and pay attention to them. And then, of course, the next thought would come and it would ramp up. And when I first tried to bring that to the court, it was still overwhelming. But that was kind of the first step that I had. And then I remember with working with you, um, you had some... Maybe I'll just let you describe it. So if you were working with someone who was an athlete similar to me, kind of an overthinking, self-critical athlete who always found what was wrong and never gave themselves much credit, um, how would you initially approach that situation with that athlete? Ah, good question. (laughs) (laughs) I want to go back before I answer that. Um, Let me say what... You had a very skillful therapist. Yeah. Uh, you know, you mentioned Thankfully. your gratitude yeah. for that. Because one of the things that she did that was, uh, she did basically have you de reify and not mm-hmm. identify with those feelings. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a concept in mindfulness that you name it to tame it. And literally, as you say, okay, I'm experiencing anxiety, the brain all of a sudden releases soothing neurochemicals mm-hmm. once the feeling's been identified. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that we, you and I did that summer too, was like get into having a more expanded vocabulary of yeah. emotions connected to the sensations. Yes. Yeah. So that leads me to the process. So the process that I teach is that first let's get in our bodies and let's understand sensation. Mm-hmm. That's how I start Yo Mind Kids out. Day one, here's yoga mats and mirror. Just notice. Yeah. You're only here to notice. You're not here to do poses. You're, you're, we're going to use these tools for you to give you opportunities to notice what some of your thought patterns are. Yes. So with an athlete, uh, with all the athletes, do the same thing. What's great about working with athletes is they have a, uh, most of them have enhanced physical intelligence mm-hmm. from years of using their body. Mm-hmm. You know, they're going to have more intelligence there. So the ability to get connected to the sensations I find with athletes is definitely the way to go. So yeah. go and get, what are you feeling? What are you noticing? And then the next step is expanding and kind of giving the cognitive piece. Mm-hmm. That says, you know, what we focus on, we become, you mm-hmm. know, those types of things. So if you're having anxiety right now, it's probably just that that's your more practice mental state. Mm-hmm. And that's fine, right? And I teach that the self-stress, and I don't know if you experienced this, is once you were okay with having anxiety, yeah, I, it diminished not only because of the neurochemicals, but there's, uh, you were also starting to line up with your values, which mm-hmm. was you were going to do whatever you could do to take to be a better performer for your team. Yeah. You were motivated by the right things. And that's what I say to kids, whether they're in athletics or not. It's like there's usually two ways you're going to have self-induced stress. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are stressors in life that are going to create some discomfort that are beyond our control. But once we accept, you know, there's two ways we get that self-generated anxiety. And I think that's what you're speaking to is yeah. the athlete that just overthinks it. Nothing's really going on around them to cause yeah. a stress mm-hmm. um, is, you know, you're going to have that self-induced anxiety if you want things to be differently than they are, yeah. which your therapist skillfully coached you out of. Yeah. And then, or if you're either not operating in alignment with your values or you're noticing and watching someone else display things that are not within your value system yeah right so um i kind of teach that sequence of first understand your sensations then understand the emotions that are attached to them and then understand that neither your thoughts or emotions are permanent Mm -hmm. nor are they a part of who you are they're just an experience you're having yeah the sensation uh of an emotion biologically passes in 90 seconds it's the thoughts that we have after when we judge it as good or bad, you know, favorable or unfavorable, right? Yeah. Uncomfortable or, you know, yeah. comfortable. Those are the things that are going to start having, create, creating looping in the mind. Yeah. In the untrained mind, we'll start looping and kind of get stuck on that. Yeah. And then um, after that, it's really recognizing, this is kind of the whole yo mind shtick, is that you know, once you understand how feelings operate from a chemical part in your body yeah. and your mind, then understand that everything everyone says or does is to meet a, a need. Mm-hmm. And then I 
educate about human needs, that we're basically all the same. We need things and the anxiety that kids experience, it's like that, what your therapist was saying is that's your friend. Yeah. You know, it's how you look at that anxiety that's going to create results. Mm-hmm. It's like uh, Kelly McGonigal says in The Upside of Stress, you know, she's got a lot of science. She did a great TED Talk on this. It's how do you look at that stressor or that anxiety that will literally change the chemistry in your body. If mm-hmm. you go, oh, huh, I'm feeling, you know, like your therapist said, what's the sensation in your body? And you get down to the kind of break it down and accept it. You mentioned the word free. Yeah. That kind of frees you. And so kind of getting that concept of like, wow, this anxiety is trying to tell me something. What do I need? What's underneath this? Yes. And then, you know, we be- then kind of learning about the drive systems. And with this is where the I think a lot of athletes experience anxiety. It's a performance-based thing where there's numbers and tallies and statistics yeah. yeah, you know all about that one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, right. And at the same time, we're also human beings that are having a human experience, but we're trying to perform. And when there's that uh, discrepancy between what a person's uh, own self-proclaimed goals are, if that if that's not happening for them that's when the anxiety hits, right? Yes. And at the same time, you can't just go into a game and say, okay, 19 points, I, I, I'm signing up for the 19 points and 11 rebounds and seven assists. <laughs> you know, you've got to do those one at a time. Yeah. And so the practice of yoga and mindfulness and that with an athlete like that would be part education, uh, you know, again, starting with a visceral part, teaching some tools, yeah. For slowing the mind, a lot of the pranayama practices, basically pranayama, the breath control, is scientifically shown to slow the mind. So when you learn to take pauses between breaths, it starts taking pauses between thoughts. Yeah. And we basically want to go in there and redirect those synapses in the mind. Yeah. So that keep us going on, you know, there's lots of names for it, the negative train, that downward spiral, that yeah. rumination, the catastrophizing, yes. all the things that the human brain wants to do by nature. Yes. You know, and so I teach them, you know, once they've understood that they're totally okay and all their thoughts and feelings are okay. Yeah. Then it's like, I say, give yourself a break now that you understand this. And what do you value? Don't let yourself off the hook. So let's give yourself yeah. a break. Don't let yourself off the hook. Yeah. And stay accountable to the values that you have as an athlete, yeah. as a person that's contributing to the team. Yeah. Looking at the interconnectivity of how when one athlete is anxious, it's like, it's contagious. Yes. And so I kind of teach this concept of the team bubble. Yeah. And that, you know, the elevation of the team bubble is, is really um, contingent on everyone being making space for everyone to have these feelings. And I think this was your direct question is, you know, what do we do with anxious athletes? Redirect. Yeah. Understand and have them focus on the favorable. That's to say that often, yeah. you know, because, and that's what the science supports as well. It's like yeah. everybody misses free throws. I remember coaching. I had one kid, great three-point shooter, just lights out in the gym, but yeah. he would get in a game and he couldn't hit anything. Right. Because he was so afraid to miss. Yeah. And so one day in practice, he, you know, sunk one from you know 
pretty deep, probably about you know twelve feet back, and for off the three point line, and for yeah. a high school kid, that's pretty decent. Yeah. And then he kind of moved down to the corner and took another shot and missed, and got so upset with himself. I said, "You yeah. just hit a beautiful shot and you missed one." And pros don't even shoot fifty percent. Yeah. So right. it's but it's so it's perspective. So it's kind of teaching that emotional agility. Yeah. And let let them understand that it's the same as an athletic performance. You're you're basically training your mind just as you train your body. Yeah. Whatever you practice the most, yeah. mindset wise, that's going to show up under the most stressful conditions, which yes. are championships. And that's yes. what LeBron talked <laughs> yes. about. Yes. Yeah. Is that good? Yeah. I, I kind of emphasize it. I, I get kind of nerdy about the science, yet it's in the sciences where the freedom is. Yeah. That recognition that we're human. Yes. And it doesn't matter if we're an athlete. Uh, you know, a cellist, yes. anything that's got a performance-based activity is going to create some kind of lead up to an event yes. that's going to, the mind's going to have all kinds of opportunity to wander around. And so just noticing it as thinking, and that only comes from practice. Yes. And that's getting back to why we sit on, <laughs> why we sit. Right. One other thing, um, this is, along the same lines but something I remember from working with you that summer and since then has been your emphasis on language and self-talk and how you you had simple ways of reframing self-talk that were actually surprisingly powerful I remember when you first introduced it I wasn't sure where it was going but I remember after some time it took it struck me as something that was really useful to think about um, like for instance, you had, you encouraged me to, <clears throat> rather than saying, I have to go do something in the afternoon, it was simply, I'm choosing to go mm. do something. And it sort of did break. It was like, okay, made it more, instead of just being reactive to the day, it was a little bit more deliberate. Okay. I'm choosing to go to the bank or I'm choosing to go get groceries. And that's something that stuck with me rather than, oh, I have to go do this, this, and this. So that here's your next assignment. If you've understood that, then changing choose to get to i okay. get to go do it <laughs> yes. Even, and each of those words have to yes choose to and get to uh, think about it. i get to go change my flat tire <laughs> yeah exactly but it, they produce chemicals because yeah. it's saying and the other nuance there too and i don't know if i was doing this with you back then but now when i have students do that make a list of have to what you have to do and then change it to choose yeah. or get to um at that same time, have a why. Mm -hmm. Like, I, you know, I'm choosing to do this. And then look at your why. And is it, are you avoiding a threat or are you seeking a reward? Because mm -hmm. that's another level of kind of self-reflection. Yeah. And I've had um, students say, wow, I didn't realize, but I'm just kind of like dodging bullets here. <laughs> I'm just like, literally everything I'm doing is driven by feeling like there's going to be some kind of punishment Right. Right. So there's another, there's kind of levels of and nuances of refinement. Yes. And the other one speaks to um, what I found is that the, that kind of nagging, I should be doing this, I should be doing this. Yeah. Takes up a whole lot of bandwidth in people. Yes. And as soon as we take pause and usually after a, takes a little bit of maybe physical movement, a little bit of meditation, but to get into that space to reframe that and say i want to do this mm -hmm. because i value blank what, what is it that you value and that kind of creates a value system yeah 
And so then I've got this kind of little thing. It's like, okay, you, you become more aware of your avoiding threat or seeking reward mm-hmm. and that re- accepting and recognizing your personal agency mm-hmm. over that I have to yeah. thing that that's completely manufactured in our mind how we're going to experience that that's up to us personal agency and then that's where we can kind of let ourselves off the hook once we don't if we didn't know that before but then using that other concept of saying these are the things that i'm i I want to do i have a desire to do this because i'm i have a value or a human need connect human need you know Mm -hmm. there's a because everything we say or do is to meet a need and also the choices that we make reflect our values Yes. So it's it's really just what you spoke about before was taking that awareness that you learn with our summer together and through your um, time with your um, psychologist. She was a sports psychologist. Yeah. Really, uh, mm-hmm. And um, applying it to off the court as well. Yeah. You know, playing on the court, off the court, just basically that your mind is, I think it's a, I don't know if this is this simple, but it might be. It's just the acceptance that we are completely responsible for our experience. Yeah. And mindfulness, I don't know who said this, we can't change the world around us, but we can certainly change our reaction to it. Yeah. And that's why your mind is first start with the breath, then, you know, it's believe, it's breathe, perceive, respond. And once we can slow down the mind a little bit, we have that option to change the way we perceive things. Mm-hmm. And then, again, we've got some agency over how we respond. Yeah. And, uh, you know, right? I, I, earlier in the podcast, we were talking about, like, what's that, what's that sweet spot? As yeah. uh, my son said, what's the Goldilocks coaching mindset? It's the Goldilocks performance spot. Yeah. What's that sweet spot? And that's that place where you sh- you've shown up. Yeah. And what I encourage in the athletes I work with is that if you've done everything that's on your value list, mm-hmm. and you've done everything your coaches ask of you, and you you are really in it, yeah. 100% with your team, committed to the team, whether you're playing or not playing. If your mind's there, then you're going to have a favorable experience. Yeah. You know. It, yeah. It it may not translate to minutes played. Mm-hmm. Might not translate to. Um, you know, points on the board or statistics or championships, but you will have become, you will have had an opportunity in a group to pursue a goal together. And that's going to make you even smarter. Yeah. Because you know, when we're functioning in that tended and be friends system you know, yes. rather than fight or flight. And that's really what your, your journey to me has been going from how am I doing, Billy, how's Billy Hansen doing, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of stats and, oh, no, now Billy Hansen's not doing so well <laughs> to moving to a point that says, I need to take care of myself, but I also have a team that I'm part of and I have a obligation to show up for them. And I think the love of the game and the love of your team was also really, from my perspective, really motivated you Yeah. or was a big motivator. Maybe yeah, you could absolutely. speak to that how the kind of team aspect helped your own mental aspect yeah. once you kind of bought into that. So when I went from being hope just really in a bad place as a sophomore and then I worked um, on my meditation skills between my sophomore and junior season and we had another pretty terrible year from the outside as a junior, but the crucial difference was that I was not miserable anymore. So 
that was kind of proof that your own, like you said, your own reaction to the external world is more important than the, it's not to say that circumstances don't matter or that you shouldn't try to win or play well. Of course we want those things. But my sophomore year, my junior year were very similar on paper. I was bouncing in and out of the lineup, wasn't shooting very well, still getting yelled at by my coach, still felt kind of like I wasn't earning my scholarship. But as a sophomore, I was depressed and an alcoholic pretty much. And as a junior, I was still didn't like basketball very much, but I was okay. And I didn't want to be asleep. And I was able to enjoy my friends and I was able to kind of laugh at my own situation a little bit. And I attribute a lot of that to just that little bit of skill set that I learned with the meadow awareness and the yoga and the meditation I was doing. It really helped me be okay in a situation that still wasn't externally um, positive. Then as a senior, I got a new coach and a new program and kind of a chance to start over and ended up having a, a you know, really good season and made the starting lineup. It was kind of a, a happy ending uh, or was a happy ending. And to get back to your point about how I love what you say about keeping your intention or your value system, um, sticking to that and kind of using that as your anchor because it was, I found this kind of better intention towards my teammates, my coaches and the game itself. And like you said, yeah, it wasn't as much about how am I doing? How, what playing time am I getting? How many shots am I getting? I really did genuinely sink into the, how can I contribute to the tribe? How can I do my Mm -hmm. job well and help my teammates do well? And how can we collectively enjoy success? And then paradoxically, I started shooting the lights out second half of the season. Mm -hmm. And it was at that point where I actually, you know, I'd end games having had no idea how many shots I'd taken, made, points I'd scored, minutes I'd played. And previously in my career, even in high school, when I was doing well, there was still this kind of attachment to my own ego of I had a running total in my head of shots I'd made and missed, how many points I'd scored. I'd sit in class periods in high school and I'd, you know, during baseball, I'd say, okay, if I go two for eight on Saturday in the doubleheader, where will my batting average get to? What if oh, I go wow. what if I go six for eight? Like how many hits do I need to break the school record? I have all of that going in my head. And I think part of that's just the, you know, I'm a numbers nerd and kind of a neurotic, um, well, here I go reifying myself again. But um, the, yeah, when I was a senior, I found that letting myself sink into the, what the team was up to and how I could help do my part in the game plan freed me up to drop into those flow states, as, as they're called, mm-hmm. where time seems to slow down you forget about your sense of self and just the game remains and those are you know honestly I look back at those moments competing with my friends and for the coaches that I really loved as some of my favorite moments in my life where somehow I'd come over to the bench and I'd be dripping sweat and tired and I'd be like okay we're down you know we're up by three with two minutes left I have no idea what I've like I just kind of what what has happened in the last hour it's just like this amazing feeling that athletes have described but it took me until towards the end of my senior year to really get there. Yeah. Um, I remember seeing you at Christmas break. Yeah. Um, and I said, have you been doing your scans? Mm-hmm. And you said, well, not quite as much or something <laughs> like that. And I remember you, uh, that text I got at 10 o'clock at night when you had that 20-point game. Yeah. I think we're an hour difference. Right. I jumped for joy. I was like, yeah, he's back. <laughs> he's back. But yeah. it's um, it really you expressed a lot of... Uh, you know, connection with your team and you, you went back to having fun. Yeah. And I think, you know, watching your d- journey, um, 
remember those days when I was coaching basketball and I'd see you practicing, didn't know you very well, but I'd say, hey, Billy, come over and talk to these guys for a minute. I would just just say something, you know, just to get them focused because they all knew who you were and everything. And I remember you saying back then that what was going to be the thing that you remembered the most and cherished the most was not the time that you spent playing video games or, you know, doing things off outside of sports, these moments with teammates, even prior to your, that was even prior to you starting meditation. Yeah. You expressed that as one of your core values. Yeah. And the things that were most, that you cherished the most. And isn't that kind of, that's kind of poetic actually, that you were saying that, I think this was, you're probably your uh, summer between your freshman and sophomore years. Yeah. And that's interesting because that's also, I didn't know that you were having, uh, you know, struggles Troubles, at that time, yeah. but you certainly didn't lack work at work ethic. No. And that was part of the time when my only, the only outlet I had to try to work on my mind and my was physical. And I was always a kind of a drudge in the gym. I loved my, I've always loved working hard on physical mm-hmm. skills. Um, and at that point I was pouring all of my energy into, a, you know, it was interesting because kind of a tangent here, but you know, I was working so hard to get my shooting percentages up in these drills with my dad rebounding or my opa rebounding from, you know, 75% to 80% or get my mile time from, you know, whatever it was, shave 10 seconds off of it without realizing, I realized later that until my mind, until I had some mental skills, none of that would matter. It was like, you can do as well as you can in the gym alone. But like you said about that player, when the lights are on, if you're having an anxiety attack or you're putting so much pressure on yourself none of those skills can be accessed so it was almost like this glass ceiling that my mind had set on my physical training and it wasn't until I unlocked my mind a little bit that I could actually reap the benefits of the physical training um yeah I almost see it like a full circle too yeah because I remember seeing you play um in high school yeah um but you, you played with such fluidity. Yeah. And you kind of returned back to that as you might have been a little physically bigger as a senior in college. But, you know, in my mind, I didn't see you play that much. But I remember seeing you play as a senior that game and that type of freedom, even though you had the um, numbers game going on in your mind. Yeah. You still played with fluidity and freedom. Yeah. You know, and then it's just, you got a little more challenge. And what is really cool about all this is that going back to how you do anything is how you do everything. That kind of work ethic that you had in the gym from day one, mm-hmm. actually, since you were real little, I saw some of the, your dad sent me some of the films of when you were like in fifth grade playing. <laughs> you always had that intensity and that go for it attitude. And it's so cool to see you have. Uh, been witnessed to see you apply that same kind of work ethic to your mental life. Yeah. And what also has, I don't know if you want to speak to this, but how all of this has translated to interpersonal relationship uh, or the elevation of that (laughs) game as well, you know, like with interpersonal relationships, I've seen you grow there as well. Yeah. And one thing I've, I've written about is, the all the hours I put into ball handling and shooting, I don't regret that at all. It was amazing, but it is 
kind of striking to notice that I have these skills that have no longer, you know, I'm still a good shooter and it's still fun, but they don't apply directly to my life in any way anymore. But the training I did mentally as an athlete, all the hours I sat in silence, meditation, cushion, cushion, all of the yin yoga, you know, all of the, the, the mental training, that really does apply to everything I do. And that's how I show up for my family and how I, um, how available I am in my intimate relationship and with my friends and, you know, even just finding a more authentic path. We'll take a quick break and then get back to the end of my conversation with Libby Edson. Not everything that's comfortable is favorable. Yeah. And things that are uncomfortable can be favorable mm-hmm. as well because they that's where we grow. And that's sometimes, I think you and I talked about this a lot that summer about getting out of your comfort zone. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that, you know, discomfort is a signal that we need to reassess and change strategies. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And so the strategy you used you know, had this signal from your body that you were getting anxiety, this strategy, your first strategy was, I'm going to go to a sports psychologist. Yeah, or my 10th strategy after alcohol and porn and everything. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's it. The one that works, yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, and it's, that's, I've actually thought about this lately. I just returned from the Nationals uh, volleyball tournament just Mm. about a month ago and had kind of a coming home of sense. I, you know, had a great high school experience. I was one of the first women to be able to get a scholar college scholarship because of Title IX. I graduated in 79, mm. and it kind of opened the door to being able to get a college scholarship. So I was so excited about that, yet went into a culture that where women's sports was just emerging, and there wasn't a lot of uh, skill involved <laughs> in knowing how to coach women, and we were kind of being coached as if we were in the military, mm. and uh, it wasn't very comfortable. Mm-hmm. And um, so I kind of turned my back on the sport itself and thought that that was the cause of mm. my anxiety, mm. you know, or the you know the anxiety around it. I ended up, you know, having three seasons. But when I went back to the um, tournament and talked to people, a few people my age, and said, oh, yeah, that was the era, era where we were trying to base everything off a system of Japanese military style training. Mm. It all it all kind of made sense to me and I've had enough years on the cushion to be compassionate um, not only to myself for, for not having, you know, finished out my athletic career and gone on to um, I played other sports afterwards, but finishing out my volleyball and going onto the beach and being a professional like I thought I was going to, mm. I was able to give myself a break and kind of recognize that, you know, all these breakthroughs in science, mm-hmm. you know, what's the way we're going to get them to the kids? And that's kind of gets me to how much I love sports and how much I am so grateful I got introduced to yoga mm-hmm. um, in my early 30s. I'm 58 now, but I, uh, early 30s, was playing a lot of sports, a little bit banged up, and pe- I was already meditating quite a bit. Yeah, Actually, I had a really strong meditation practice. And someone said, hey, you should try yoga. 
Mm-hmm. And so I ended up finding the right teacher and found that that was a way for me to even deepen my practice more. Yeah. And it, um, I'm kind of talking in circles here, but I want to go back to what you said. You said you have these skills right now, these ball handling skills and stuff that are maybe dormant right now. Yeah. But they're still of value because I've been able, this coming back and working with a volleyball team and being able to share uh, all this mental stuff with them speak the volleyball language exactly yeah. and also the the movements of the physic of you know, the yoga practice they're just shapes but the, it's the body intelligence and the yoga increases body intelligence just as uh, meditation and this you know science proves that visualization mm-hmm. after and so all the, that time that you just you know muscled it out in the gym yeah was good because it finally taught you that hey maybe you could take a break for a second and relax a little bit and your performance actually ended up going up and kind of talking in circles but to me it's like everything's the same now i understand (laughs) but like i wish i would have had these skills when i was playing yeah and that's what kind of motivates me to give it to youth whether they're in sports or not i feel like we have the science Mm -hmm. now of how things you know how how our minds work we have the tools for de-reifying and shifting perception yeah. and because we have that we that's my main goal is to get this into schools as a subject i'm not the only person that's working with youth in ter- terms of mindfulness and yoga mm-hmm. but it's the scientific approach and letting kids know that they're just so human yeah and it's okay and yet sticking to the value system of what you want and athletics has a different value system Mm-hmm. than if maybe you were, you know, an artist or something like that, but no less valuable. They're just different. Right. And so we kind of talked about how does this meditation make you a better athlete? Is it going to make you mellow and soft? Not at no, all. No. Yeah. It's just going to make you be able to meet the moment mm-hmm. with everything you've got. And yes. that's, I think, the zone. That's a really important point because that was something that I didn't my junior year when I'd first developed a meditation practice and I was trying to bring it with me out of the court, I did, there was a crucial bit of confusion in that I was almost like acting the part of a, of a mindful athlete or of a mindful, yeah, of a mindful athlete when, where I'd, I'd show up and I'd be a little bit quiet and reserved and I'd try to look and act, feel calm. And that was a good first step because at least I wasn't you know, I, I had calmed my anxiety, so it was great. But as a senior, I found a more healthy attitude and that you, like you said, it's not incompatible with um, bringing big emotion, competitive spirit, losing yourself in the game, yelling out commands on the court, even talking shit. Like, I think that you, it's a mistake to think that mindfulness will make you you know, look like a cult leader, like uh, Osho mm-hmm. or something with the eyes and calm breathing. It's like, you can still be a badass on the court. Absolutely. It's just this, it's just this, or on the field, it's just this meta awareness. And I, I try to look at when I, when I'm teaching, as I'm teaching it to athletes now, I try to make this point by saying, you know, lose yourself in the game and you still have to, you know, use your footwork and you, you know, the basketball skills are, skills are still primal if you're wanting to have success. Your meditation practice and your yoga practice you, you put the work in off the court and then in moments in the game where you feel the storm hit when you get really pissed off about a call or you don't agree with something your coach is doing 
or you've missed your first four shots and you're starting to lose confidence, those can act as mindfulness alarms where, okay, it's time to notice my feet on the floor. It's time to yep. feel how the ball feels in my hands. It's time to take a few breaths and then refocus back on your intention or like you said, your value system, which can be the next play or what, what are we doing right now to get the next stop or score or whatever sport you're playing. Um, so yeah, that bit of confusion I think is consequential when coaches don't want their players to retract from the sport and just, oh, you know, I'm a meditator now, everything's fine. That's obviously not the message we're teaching. Right. It's becoming more engaged and more willing to feel the wide spectrum of sports, which is, you know, when you play sports, it's going to come with some heartbreak and some pain. Like that, you sign up for that when you play. And so meditation doesn't try to pull you away from that. It's more just being okay with the ups and downs, if that makes sense. Yeah, to- yeah it makes a lot of sense. And it also... Um goes back to you know the process it happens one moment at a time yeah and you spoke earlier to that summer where we talked about how fluid we are as people you know like 10 minutes from now after this conversation you and i will be different people than we were prior to this conversation yeah tomorrow you know every day we're just a sum total of our experiences and the interpretations of those experiences Yet the value of doing meditation and the value of knowing yourself better, if that I mean, there's so many different ways to describe it. Noticing the mind, stilling the mind, taking a pause, those become so valuable when you've practiced it enough on off the court in those moments of stress during the, the court or when you're on the court and competing, you've got something that you can just pause for a second and reset. Mm-hmm. And that to me is just invaluable like Mm -hmm. whether it's in in life or not just the ability to stop pause and reset and also what i find fascinating is the how different people have different things that resonate with them Mm -hmm. you know like for you might be feet on the floor Mm -hmm. um i'm reading a lot now about gaze eye gaze Mm -hmm. about you know keeping the gaze eye level because when that okay you know when your eyes go down you go into like the emotional centers. Mm. I'll show you a, a little diagram later. You, you know, you can tell when someone's lying by where their eyes go. They're making <laughs> something up or remembering. But, you know, like learning those things, learning to be able to direct your attention with your eyes. I mean, mindfulness and meditation is so sensory. Yeah. And because of, we haven't spoke about trauma-informed practices, but each individual comes to a practice meditation or mindfulness whatever you want to call it with a whole story behind them of experiences so that you know meet themselves on the mat and there every tool is not for everybody mm-hmm. like closing your eyes for some people in piece people that have high a scores a focused you know focusing on a spot is a more favorable thing because mm-hmm. when they close their eyes it's, i'm not really sure of the science of it but it's you know I guess I think that's important when we talk about applying mindfulness and meditation to sport is recognize that one size doesn't fit all. Yeah. One tool might work for you. For me, I might not have that uh, synapse developed where it works, <laughs> you know, or that it over whatever that practice is. I just think, I guess that's what I'm just trying to say is that once you understand that sitting on the mat is there's no right way to do it 
you know, that's when things become free. Yeah. You know, that however you're doing it, you're just noticing. Right. You know, and that's the noticing is what I think really uh, helps with with sport, being able to regulate and accept personally, you know, saying that you have personal agency over your experience. So one of the things I want to touch on with you, because it's something that you've emphasized and instilled in me um, quite skillfully, is how the contemplative practice and meditation can upgrade your priorities or at least put priorities in better perspective and in turn create better habits which tend to um, snowball so once you start making one positive change it's easier to make another one and I've certainly noticed that myself and that I found as I've been practicing more my life simplify and a lot of the things that I was doing just for the sake of doing them um, or that weren't really authentic to my path have fallen away and I've found you know it's certainly not perfect but just more ease in the world and more productive habits that have also compounded into just a greater sense of well-being um, what do you think about the relationship between the contemplative practice and habit building and prioritizing um, there's a there's a direct relationship between uh, having a practice of some sort a mind training of, and the ability to make good decisions and good decisions are basically what create our habits um, James Clear in his book Atomic Habits talks about you know looking at each action as a micro step towards a goal uh, yoga talks about leaning into it one percent lean into the favorable one percent things that you're doing favorable lean into those and over time Neuroscience supports that those things that you practice over and over again eventually become a neural trait, which become part of your personality. So in terms of um, the contemplative practice, basically we develop a relationship with the mind. We develop and accept the personal agency we have over where we direct our thoughts and attention. And that in turn leads to much better decision making. So the decision-making piece is really what I think for any athlete, whether, you know, you can grind it out in the gym, which is a great thing to do. But when we add to that um, skillful use of our mental energy, our emotional energy, and practice the uh, things that support whatever game we're playing, you know, the habit building is um, definitely uh based in decision-making and the mindfulness practice itself, whether we're doing an open monitored practice where we're paying attention and operating in the world, or we're doing a meditate, more meditative solo practice where we're just sitting with our thoughts, there's a level of awareness of being able to slow down the mind. And it's those spaces between thoughts is where emotional agility and being able to choose again to reset and choose a better habit step mm -hmm. in so there's i think there's a direct connection between having a trained mind and uh good habits yeah definitely I, I think that book you referenced i haven't read it yet but i did see in one of the blogs that i like to follow um there's a little recap of it and one of the charts they showed was compounding growth which is usually a financial concept where you put 
you know, $10 into a savings account and then you get some interest back and mm-hmm. it's not a linear um, improvement. But as if you improve 1% every year uh, financially, then you see the, the, the curve on the graph start to skyrocket and you get what, you know, exponential gains. And this author makes the argument that um, improvements in anything are like that and that it's not just a linear growth. So that those first when you start to meditate, those first gains that you make um, might seem slow, but it's actually the first step towards kind of an explosion of growth. And you turn this corner where your gains start to compound. And, you know, whether that's in your sport or in your relationship or meditation, I've taking on that mental framework has really helped me think about how, you know, my decision to order a salad rather than fries right now is part of this compounding growth and it means more than just um this one instance right and the same thing's true with uh exponential decay so if you get one percent worse every day you're gonna you're gonna go you're gonna move towards zero pretty quickly if you look at a graph um maybe I'll, i'll link to the to this graph in the in the show notes so you can look at it um yeah i love what you're saying too because it's it's micro decisions that yeah. create our macro experience over time. Yeah. And um, James Clear also sends out this little newsletter, mm-hmm. I think, every Thursday. And he, mm-hmm. I love quotes, but um, I love this one. It's by Laurie Buchanan, and it says, whatever you are not changing, you are choosing. Mm-hmm. And it's basically we're choosing things with our actions. Yeah. You know, every time we make a choice, it's basically that's our world. It's either adding value or taking away. Right, right. I say well, to the students when I close up the yoga practice, I always say, you know, direct your attention to a mindset that you might want to become part of your personality. Mm-hmm. You know, what mindset would help you in the next few hours, either um, adding value, creating ease, or inspiring joy mm-hmm. in yourself or another person? Mm-hmm. And it's like, that's kind of my personal mantra. It's like, is this action here? This decision I'm making, this habit that I'm building, is it adding value? Is it creating ease or is it inspiring joy? And mm. if it doesn't fit into those three things, I might want to think about changing it. Nice. That's beautiful. Well, it's been so nice to have you on the podcast. I'm sure this will be, if this project continues, then I'd like to have you back. We have many more things to talk about. We've talked about doing something on um, drugs and alcohol and athletics because I you had an influence on me there and that's something that's really important it can make or break an athletic experience so we have more to talk about but i think we should save that for another episode where can um people listening find you on the internet um you can go to www.yomind.com mm-hmm. and kind of tells a little bit about the project and has a history of uh, the last eight years of efforts reaching nine thousand students with on class um in-person class instruction mm-hmm. and with the videos we've put out there I'm pretty stoked about this they have uh, just kind of dumped them on the internet without any promotion and now we're at over a hundred thousand views mm-hmm. over 50 countries and I often get um, photographs of an entire school watching wow. the the film so if you have an interest in yo mind please uh, log on it is a project it's a, a labor of love, mm-hmm. but it's really underneath that. The bottom line is, I feel like because we have the science, it's a human right to know how your mind works. Mm. Whether you're an athlete, uh, you know, 
uh, any, any person, a child, we, it's a human right to know how the brain works. We have the science now and we need to get it out there because I think it gives students a foundation for you know, giving themselves a break and making some more skillful decisions. Yeah. And I think uh, we can all agree. I think we could all be doing a little bit more skillful decisions yes, yes. would uh, contribute to a much better world. Well, thank you, Libby. And yeah, thank I mean, you, Bill. The, the impact you made on me and to my friends. And, you know, it's I, I'm just a drop in the bucket of what you're up to. I mean, my mom talks about how the resources that you've given her to bring mindfulness into her second grade class. She's been amazed at how um, impactful that's been. And I know that, you know, you're reaching so many people doing what you're doing. So it's a it's really admirable and important work you're doing. So keep it up. Thank you so much, Billy. It's been so fun. Thanks for having me. And I look forward to our next one. You too. Thank you.